So I had situations where I felt ill-equipped and unqualified to attend to. People calling you and saying, my daughter is sick. They are panicking. They want you to pray. They are hoping God is going to speak through you, you know? Yeah. And I feel like, no, 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 no. Ah, ah, please, this is not what I sign up for. I don't want to pray with you and we go away. You know, so I started to become really hesitant. My father told me life is not a this is Origins Africa podcast, where we explore the origin stories of people who have made and are making their dreams come true, asking the what, the when, the how, and the why. You do, I'm Oshaye, and on the first episode of our chats with Debola Dejikoromi, DDK as she's fondly called, she talks about growing up and how she was programmed by her parents to expect to succeed in life. She talks about her faith and philosophy, the problems she wanted to solve as a kid, her insecurities and weaknesses, as well as the birth and evolution of the Deborah Women Initiative, coupled with mistakes made along the way. Debola Dejikuromi, DDK as she's fondly called, is the president and founder of the Deborah Initiative for Women, a non-denominational Christian ministry in five countries equipping women to live for Christ. She is the executive director at Ideation Hub Africa, an accelerator for Africa's social innovators, change makers, and development entrepreneurs. Ideation Hub Africa also hosts Development Dialogue, Nigeria's leading conference for leaders of non-governmental organizations, social entrepreneurs, and change makers. DDK is also the founder and CEO of Immerse Coaching Company, an online personal transformation institute, helping women launch a higher version of themselves. Immerse has an alumni of over 10,000 women across nine countries from its suite of programs since 2014. DDK and her husband are resident pastors at a baptizing church in Lekki, in Lagos State of Nigeria. At the start of our chat with DDK, we asked her about how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected her generally. She responded that it's probably been the best season of her life in years. Um, aside the fact that I'm, I'm deeply hurt by the loss of life, it has been maybe the best season of my life in years. <laughs> oh, really? Absolutely. How do you mean? Well, I have I've reconnected with the things that are biggest priorities to me. So I've literally redesigned my life to fit uh, my higher visions of how I want to be an integrated and harmonized person. I have also, because I don't have travel time, I don't have to make trips to the office working from home has literally dashed me as much as five, six hours of extra good time of working. And yeah, I'm able to efficiently just work within the schedule that really makes me feel the highest level of productivity. So, and then, I mean, my, my business revenue has almost tripled this year alone. Wow. That's great. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Interestingly, before we started, DDK had mentioned that she didn't think she had an interesting story. But guys, prepare to be gobsmacked on this episode. 
I'm serious. <laughs> Growing up for DDK is the most unforgettable part of her journey. She looks at her life now and sees that about 70 to 80% of who she's become and how she approaches life and really everything is so connected to how she was raised. In her words, she was programmed by her parents to expect to succeed in life. I know that now through hindsight, it wasn't that apparent when I was growing up, but I do look at my life now and I see that about 70 to 80% of who I've become and how I approach life, like really everything, really, really so much about who I am and what I've become or done is so connected to how I was raised. I'm not even sure my parents were, I don't, I don't know if they really set out to be that intentional about raising us, but it turned out that a lot of the things I even read in books now about intentional parenting were exactly the things my parents um, were doing with us. And the way to summarize it is I would just say my father brainwashed me into believing that I was I was invincible. I was <laughs> like I was a super superpower on the earth. He spent the first six to eight years of my life really indoctrinating me into believing that nothing is impossible, into believing that um, you know I am exceptional. I have what it takes, and I don't have to lose my voice just because I want to blend into the crowd. I mean, yeah. And so I grew up also observing that my father had, uh, my parents had choices that they lived so different from their friends and, you know, our neighbors. My father was an entrepreneur, is still an entrepreneur. And I remember he would say, well, I chose this life that I don't have to carry brief briefcases and go out to work early just because I want to be able to be there for you, to care for you. So he was such a present dad. My mom is such a present mom and we used to have daily confessions where they'll, they'll literally make us recite things that spoke around our identity, our place in the world, the kind of heart we had. I mean, I look back and I just even desire to measure up <laughs> with my own parenting, but for real, it's all about the subconscious conditioning. I was programmed to expect to succeed in life. You know, that's how my parents raised us. And it has shaped every single part of who I am today. That's great. I'm not sure many children grew up in with such conditioning yeah. today or even yeah. then. Yeah. Okay. So who are the greater influence on you, your dad or your mom? Um, my dad had a greater influence on me. <laughs> my dad had a greater influence on me. I look just like him. Um, and Interested. I yeah, yeah, yeah. I look like my dad. He's a very handsome man. <laughs> I, I share many of his interests. So very early, we started to build quite a great friendship just because I love to read. So he will hand me newspapers as, as young as eight years old. He would hand me Wally Shrinkers stories and novels. I remember reading Arcade, The Years of Childhood just when I was 11. And it was almost a 400-page book or so. I can't remember but it looked so large to me. But I covered it in days and I would just be, you know, gisting him. What? So because we, we love to read together, because we were so both so passionate about politics, uh, we would be discussing and arguing into the night. 
right? And uh, because we, you know, because we also had such a philosophical, he was, he, his first degree was in philosophy. And, you know, he gave me a lot of his philosophy books just before I go into university. In fact, by the time I go into OAU, I did so well with my philosophy courses that I, I, I got the attention of the lecturer saying, hey, why don't you just jump into our own department? And it was really because I was indoctrinated into philosophy and the and new ways of viewing the world. Uh, yeah, and just always, you know, questioning things really. So because we had similar interests, we just really bonded, became close friends. Uh, we both have a humorous streak, so we laugh at ourselves. Um, and then, you know, I, I he also really started to invest in my spirituality. So, you know, I would study scriptures, he would ask me questions. Yeah, so yeah, he, he had such a great influence on me. Okay, that's great. Talking about philosophy, I know it could, um, people sometimes see it as maybe anti-Christianity. So how were you able to balance philosophy and Christianity growing up? Mm-hmm. And even now? Mm-hmm. That's such a great question, Shay, because even till today, I find myself sometimes um, subconsciously resisting the, the traditional you know, organized religion, you know, um, even though I pastor a church with my husband, I am sometimes the voice of reason where I'm saying, look, you know, don't be blinded because if you look closely at who Jesus Christ was, you start to really see that he wasn't just some, um, some, what's the word here, religious person who wasn't using his mind and was just following the status quo. He was actually like, uh, you know, a he was confronting the status quo. He was confronting the religious order of the day. His work was intersecting with the military, the political structures. He was, he, his work had social economic implications. Do you see he was moving across social strata and engaging people at the bottom of the pyramid? He was just not some guy who was, you know, submitted to um, a certain way of doing thing, things in the traditional sense, but he actually brought the new. And that's what I believe shapes how I approach my own relationship with God. I believe that a true relationship with God is is really supposed to produce innovation. It's supposed to open your eyes to thinking new thoughts. And by the way, you know, when Jesus came to the earth and he started to um, declare the message of the kingdom saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That word repent has suffered, you know, theological abuse because people often preach repent to mean change your behavior and turn from you know, what you're doing so that you can accept the Lord. But the root word of repent is metanoia. And what it really means is experiencing a radical departure from existing thinking patterns. Metanoia really means think new thoughts, turn away from your programming and embrace a new set of attitudes in your mind. And if that is what repentance really means, it means that there are many unrepented people um, or unrepentant people in church, you know, because it's possible you're a part of church culture, but you're not a part of kingdom culture. And so I don't know how my father got that thing, but he really got it. I know that, you know, 
I mean, by the way, my father is a pastor. <laughs> I grew up as a pastor's kid, uh, but I remember him being misunderstood because he would just be the one who would say, this is not the way things are supposed to be done. This is not, you know, what scripture really prescribes. Um, but you're just legislating on the people because it's it's traditional and it's what you met on ground, you know, in that sense. Um, so I, I don't think that there was, there was a dichotomy that was unhealthy um, when I was growing up thinking about philosophy and thinking about um, my relationship with God. When I go into university, I actually created um, a counter argument to Bertrand Russell's argument against the existence of God. And that could only happen because the way you know the, the original is to sufficiently engage the arguments against it as against just having this, you know, blindness uh, where you're angry if anybody thinks differently from what you've been told. Um, so because we would, my dad and I would look into the arguments of the atheist against the existence of God, he will then take me to scripture and start to say, see, see how we can really prove that God exists. Look at this these trends through scripture showing the existence of God. Do you see what I mean, Shay? So yes, for me, I do. Sounds like okay. a very great upbringing. <laughs> the man was epic and he's still very epic. The guy is just something else. I was still speaking to him last night and he was questioning a perspective I had on an issue regarding how I wanted to expand my business. And, you know, he wasn't letting me be. He was saying, you're the CEO, but I need to help you see things from a new light. You know, and, and I was showing him my numbers and saying, no, but this is how I think about it. And I said, chill, let me show you what you're not seeing. You know, don't be locked in a box. Let me read the labels for you. And I was just laughing like, you you don't have any chill. You're this man. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's just the truth. But growing up, DDK was also the opinionated and moody girl who threw tantrums and had, as DDK described it, about seven people's anger. Yes. So I think that um, what I'm finding now, I mean, is that with every strength um, that God has given you that comes with your, you know, your natural personality, that strength has to be tamed. Every strength that is untamed is what becomes the weaknesses. And this knowledge has significantly shaped how I've even helped a lot of my coaching clients, you know, navigate what they consider to be uh, character flaws. So just take any weakness that you have in your life and you're likely to find that it's just the extreme dimension of a core strength that has been untamed. So, yeah, by nature, I am... I'm a strong personality. If I want something, I'm going to actually go for it. If I have conviction about something, I'm happy to be the only one in the room who believes in it. Um, I'm not the sort of person that you can shut up or shut out. I can be quiet on purpose, but it's not because you, you took my voice. It's because I refuse to offer it. Um, so that was definitely the sort of person that I was as a child. And I, I took that personality clearly from my dad. But of course, when, when it, it wasn't tamed, and I think that was a hard work that my mom invested in till she got the results she was looking for. I mean, because it wasn't tamed, um, if I didn't have my way when I was younger, it has to be my way or the highway. So if I didn't have my way and I wanted my way, 
I'm just going to lose my cool. I could throw things and I would just raise my voice and be dramatic or I would shut everyone out and not speak. And what I remember very clearly is that even if I was crying when I was younger, maybe five, six, seven, crying that I wanted something or I wanted to win an argument. Yes, I was so also very argumentative, you know, and I had I have such a calm brother. So he would be like, okay, it's fine, it's fine. And then my mom would get in there and say, nope, it's not fine. Crying doesn't make Tom Jerry and crying doesn't make Jerry Tom. I remember she used to say that, you know, and she'd be like, it doesn't change the truth or the fact of the matter just because you're crying and you want to have your way. Um, so yes, yeah, she, she really invested in, and she did a lot of different things, you know, to really get me to become a lot more emotionally stable and balanced. Um, but yeah, in those earlier years up until I think when I was about 12, 13 years old, I was still such, um, such a strong um, and emotionally, what's the word? Emotionally passionate person. And it would flow out in tantrums and anger or sulking and keeping malice, you know, if I was trying to get my way. And maybe my father would typically want to let it pass. He'd be like, okay, okay, hey, stop being upset. You know, let her have what she wants. But my mom would be like, no, you're not going to have what you want. You know, you're going to learn to be emotionally intelligent and respectful to the emotions of others. You're going to speak better. Yeah. And, you know, that really impacted on uh, getting me to become maybe a lot more, um, I'm looking for the right word. So how a, a lot more regulated. That's it. I'm a really regulated person. I have my friends saying to me, you know, how come you, you on one side are very driven and visionary yet you know, in your relationships, you are quite tender. Um, and I think that's definitely a big work that God did through my mom. As a young girl, DDK was also given free reign to explore her interests. She did poetry, script writing, acting, painting, and also participated in debate competitions. I would say that's again one of the big lessons learned uh, from my parents. And I hope that I'm already passing that on to my own children um, as well as to those who are connected to me. For sure, my parents didn't have a um, traditional sense of who a child must will become. I tell you what, can you believe that my parents, you know, didn't used to say, who do you want? What do you want to become in the future? That wasn't the question we used to be asked. My dad would say, what problem do you want to solve in the world? I look back and I'm like, who is this Interesting. Guy? I'm telling huh. you. The sort of things that you now, you may now hear now, and it sounds like one new truth, and it, it will blow people's mind away like, wow. Okay, that's that's what I grew up hearing. My my father's conversations around our future was always about what what are you excited about? What makes you very excited? But he would then say, if there's anything you want to do and you love to do, and it doesn't help anyone else, that's a hobby. But if you find something you love to do and it helps other people, that can become a calling, right? And yeah, I mean, we used to have conversations around, okay, vocation, profession, calling, you know, because he would say, look at me, I have a business that I, I love. It earns, it makes money for me. And I'm able to 
give you the kind of life that I want to give you. But on the other side, I'm also a pastor. Look at that. And look at me. I also had this mentoring thing I do for young men. So he would talk to us about profession, calling, vocation, all of that. And so growing up, there was never a conversation that sounded like doctors or engineers or accountants or lawyers where, you know, the ideal professions to love and respect. My father just wanted us to have a voice. He wanted us to um, really find ourselves and explore a diversity of possibilities. When my elder brother was, I think, about 16, um, you know, he saved up some money and my dad said, you've got some money now. I think you should start a business. And I remember that he went with my brother to get um, back then chairs, tables, canopies. And my brother started a rental business that really became big. And I think he was just 15, 16 then. Yep. You know, and my dad would then show him how to reinvest into it, how not to spend all the money. Those were the kind of things that he did. And if you ever said you were interested to learn something, he would pay for it. He would say, okay, okay, you, you want to dance? Okay, good for you. You know, and I remember I would stand on the table with a turning stick. I would speak to an imaginary sea of heads, you know, and I would be speaking so passionately. So he'd be like, we have to invest. He bought me my first um, public speaking book. I remember it, some big book. I was 12. Interesting. Yeah, you know, I can go on and on, but basically, yes, I had parents who made us explore um, everything that was possible in terms of our giftings without stereotyping to say, this is what you have to become um, in life. I know your mom had also said people would think dollars to uh, hear you like speak. Oh, yes. This is my daughter's mouth. People will pay in millions of dollars to hear her speak. Yes. She said so that. So had she seen the future? Uh, she was prophesying? Or... I don't know what it was. In fact, when I got my first payment in dollars for speaking, I sent money to her because I was just like, hey, Sweetheart, this is like a down payment on the prophecy that you made for me. <laughs> wow. And she was just so pleased, so pleased. Yeah, she always said that from a very long time. In fact, we had an auntie who used to say, who used to try to shut me up, and she would say, Uti beju. you know, and what that means in, in English is something like you are sort of too forward, you know, you just always want to be heard, keep quiet. And she would, you know, she would really have a fight with her auntie that I've said to you, you can't speak to any of my children this way. Don't tell her to keep quiet because her mouth is exactly what is going to bring her millions of dollars. Interesting. <laughs> yes. So now growing up in this affirming household, did you have any fears or insecurities then? Mm, very, very good question. So yes, I did. Um, and it was connected to... The fact that I was a really fat, <laughs> I was a really fat girl growing up. You know, I have very clear memories of being in primary school and having, you you could barely see my neck, right? And having my thighs uh, slapping themselves coming from school. And um, even though, so how do I even explain this? So let me tell you just a weird intersection in terms of my, my dad's approach to how he raised us and maybe how that created um, an insecurity, you know, while they weren't even conscious of it. So my father downplayed the, the, um, the physical attributes of the person so much, downplayed meaning 
it, it, it didn't, he didn't think that how you looked was of any relevance to the success equation. Do you see? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. He didn't think that how you looked meant anything at all, right? So he didn't invest in affirming our physical looks. If you see, So, you know, you have fathers like my husband, for example. I mean, he's got two daughters and he will buy them dresses. When they dress up, getting ready for church, he'll be like, wow, turn around, turn. Oh, my God. Gosh, you're so beautiful. And you see my daughter's <laughs> like, screaming. They are so excited. It's like, turn around for me again. Oh, wow. Look at this princess. Oh, gosh. And they will be so excited. And they would, you know, themselves even be doing it to one another. Like, oh, my God, turn around. Oh, you're so beautiful. My father never did that. I can't. I don't have memories of maybe dressing and coming out. And my father would be like, wow, look at my beautiful guy. I don't think so. He was just all about, you need a mind that people cannot resist. Not a body that people can't resist. You know, he wasn't keen about you growing up to be a lady. People have to take a second look at. But his point is, when you open your mouth, make sure the room is in awe. That's my father's own. When you open your mouth, let them turn and be like, what? Who's speaking? So what he meant was, I my mom, my mom did that. But remember that my father was like the stronger voice in my own head. Yeah. She would, yeah. yeah, she'd be like, gosh, you know, she would ask us what we want to wear. She would, what do you like? You know, yeah, that kind of thing. My mother even used to sketch outfits that she wanted to make for us. And she'd be like, would you like these two steps? Yeah, yeah, I love this. And she would make her hair. She, she was keen about how we looked. But because my father was, you know, such a stronger influence in my mind, I, I remember that my first recognition of feeling like, maybe I wasn't pretty, would be when I got to secondary school. Um, I was in boarding house and I would see people just commending one another like, oh, she's so beautiful. That's the most beautiful girl in GS1. And I started to be like, so there's such a thing as someone is beautiful. Hey, ah, okay. That was never a context. It wasn't a, and you know, everything is subconscious conditioning. Yeah. So it wasn't an existing context. So I was like, if it was never mentioned to me, maybe it means that I am not beautiful because, you know, it didn't come across that much in our own conversations. You know, so I remember that I would be asking friends like, hey, how do you know she's beautiful? Can't you see? She's very beautiful now. And the people they would describe, they were slimmer than me. So I was like, oh, I'm not beautiful. Okay, I get it now. That's why my father never really said it. Oh, it's slim people that are beautiful. And that was how that um, that um, complex, if that's the word, started to gradually build. And I remember even trying to have a conversation with my dad and saying, you know, am I beautiful? And he was like, well, you don't need beauty. You've got a powerful brain. You're super brilliant. And that's what you need to thrive mm-hmm. in that. You need beauty, you know. And he would even like, he would rubbish beauty like beauty, but it was beauty. Like it's your mind. You just need to be a winner. That's what matters. <laughs> um, yeah. So that definitely created um, a complex, but it's, it's even weird because it wasn't exactly in that type um, ugly way. It was just more in the sense, in, in a way like, let me just focus on being smart and being such a great um, person with great leadership skills and I'll, I'll be fine. And, and it became okay because I was the person teachers would be like, gosh, can't you be like Debola? Such an example, complete package, all those sort of things. But I know that I, I used to wonder, but why, why, why am I not fine still, Jack? 
<laughs> uh, uh, I got to university and, you know, um, people then started to commend me that I'm fine. I'm like, eh, ah, is it true? Am I? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I started to lose weight when I got to university. I, I met friends who helped me um, get in shape because I was big. You know, maybe I'm exaggerating the big, but in, in part one, I probably was a size 14. So okay. yeah, I helped me lose weight. And then I started to feel beautiful. I had people commending me. Yeah. And I, I gradually healed out of that insecurity. Now, recall that DDK's dad had always asked them as kids the problems they wanted to solve. So what problems did DDK want to solve as a kid? And how did that translate to her studying estate management in the university? Find out after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Oshaya, and you're listening to Origins Africa podcast. Hi, dear listener. If you love our show, please leave us a review on iTunes and Apple Podcast. You can also send us a tweet or comment on Instagram at OriginsAF. We love to read from you. Nope, not later. Yes, I read your mind. Do it now. Thanks a lot. Also click the subscribe button and share with a friend. Let's make a difference together. One origin story at a time. Hi guys. Welcome back to Origins Africa podcast. As a young girl, DDK had three things that she always talked about. The three things that were always like on my mind that I wanted to that I always talk about, and I feel like I haven't even explored one of them as much. The first was always, I wanted to rescue sick babies. You know, I, I didn't want a baby to be in pain. Um, maybe it was also connected to the fact that we had lost, um, uh, you know, twin siblings at birth. My mom had had twins and they died. And I remember that she was so broken by it. Um, and, yeah, I think we, there was even another loss of another baby um, oh, many okay. years after. Mm-hmm. So, but long before that second loss, I remember that from losing the twins and just feeling like, gosh, I really, I don't want babies to suffer. I, I, I used to say that a lot, that I, I was going to have a hospital and people be able to give birth for free. They would get great care and babies who are sick will be giving good care, you know, and they'll be healed. They'll be fine. I don't want babies crying and all of that. The second thing I, I said I wanted to do was I wanted to build houses. Home, homelessness wasn't even as serious, uh, you know, a crisis as it is today. You know, but I do remember that I, I there was a lineup of, of beggars who used to stay, who used to be on the you know express leading out of our um, our area, and you know there was these men, these old men from the north who would just sit, you know, they used to call them bambiala, and they would go around different albums and they would start to sing those songs, and I I remember that I would stay alone in my room looking out of the window seeing these beggars and it would just break my heart so much. I'll be like, I want to build houses for these guys. I want them to have a good life, you know, and 
it was so serious that one time we had gone to the Babbage, which was my father's culture, um, almost every month. We just go have a picnic, carry our food over there. I remember wear jeans, face cap, and t-shirt. I'll be feeling fly, like one, oh gosh, I'll be feeling myself. <laughs> you know, and my sister and I used to dress exactly the same. My father bought exact, so we'll be feeling cool because people will be looking at us, wear jeans, jacket, and, you know, uh, jeans, pants, and, you know, wear sneakers, white shirt, face cap, feeling just so good. And we had gone to the bar beach that day, and we saw um, beggars, and I saw a man who, who had become permanently bent. If you see what I mean, he couldn't stand straight. And that, you know, that day I wept so much that we had to leave the picnic because I could not, I couldn't take it. I wept so badly. My heart was so broken by it. And I was just like, why wouldn't he be able to stand? In fact, it became like I got a little traumatized by the experience. And... I used to say a lot that I wanted to build houses for beggars. I wanted them to to own their own homes, have a good life just like us. And that was important to me. The third thing I always, always said, and it's maybe something I've done, is that I always said I was going to speak and write. That I would own a printing press. Well, when I was older, I started talking about printing press, but when I was younger, I was always like, I want to talk, that I'm going to talk. So I said, I I, I tried to become everything that had talking in it. I, I would say, I want to be a lawyer one day. Tomorrow I'll be like, I want to be a newscaster. I remember, um, what's her name? Tokumbu Ajayi. I used to look at her and, oh, I'll be like, I want to be like Tokumbu Ajayi. I want to talk. Right. So those were three things that definitely always um, were on my mind. So when I was trying to get into the university, um, I really wasn't trying to study estate management. I wanted to study architecture uh, because I thought that was going to help me build houses. (laughs) Um, But I didn't get into architecture. I I wasn't offered an admission into architecture in OAU, even though I was offered an admission into architecture in um, University of Lagos. But I wanted to go to OAU because, and it's, it's again the power of influence, because an uncle of mine had said, you need to get off being under your parents' watchful eyes in Lagos, you know, and it was just that kind of private conversation he had with me, that don't stay in Lagos. You're going to be going to university from home. That's still like secondary school life. You need to go and explore the world. And that OU is super prestigious and all of that. <laughs> yes, I was called out on OU. My dad was like, what? You don't want to be? I said, no, I don't want to be in Unilag. And then at that time, Unilag wasn't even resuming as early as OU. All those drama, things that don't matter that much any, you know, in the ultimate analysis. But I do believe that God sent me to OU because, yeah, that was the second phase of the most important season of my life. So, yeah, I, I said, estate management, that's still going to keep me in the whole real estate, housing, construction space. Why not? And I jumped on it. And, yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, the program. Okay. I know you had second year, you had started a program for leaders then in school. Yeah. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So for my second year, I started, and don't laugh at the name. If you laugh, Shay, I'm going to strangle you. I started, I'll try not to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is called, or was called God's Great Girls Network. So we had... We started God's Great Girls Network, and let me tell you how that one was born. 
Now imagine this, my upbringing. Imagine my father brainwashing me to even feeling like girls were better than boys. That's it. My dad didn't have a problem if I came second or third. So far, those who came first, second were girls. But if you heard that a guy beats the girls in the class, he wasn't going to have it. And I don't know why he was doing that. I, I feel like he was sort of preparing us for a very marginalized society. So it was until I got to university that it became clear to me that, you know, uh, that girls were looked down on. That the thing was a confusion to me because I thought it was boys that were looked down on. Honestly, I thought it was guys that were disadvantaged. I'm serious. That was how I was raised. I then get to university and I'm hearing that it's a man's world and they are treating her because she's a lady. I'm like, ah, it was, it was a shock to me. It was a culture shock. So imagine this kind of background and then getting to university and meeting people who said things to me like, you know, their parents didn't even want to want, their parents are not paying their school fees because they're girls. Um, and, and people that had been raped, sexually abused, uh, you know, by uncles and all, all weird things. And I was just like, a girl, a, a, a girl is gold, you know? Um, so I remember that my first year was a big culture shock. I met a lot of ladies who were, who were really emotionally damaged, who doubted who they were, had identity crisis, self-esteem issues, didn't dress well, didn't feel good about themselves. And I remember that a lot of them were gravitating toward me, just saying, who are you like? Who are you? I had so much presence. Like, I would enter a room. Shaya, do you know what? You know the philosophy class I was telling you about? It was yeah. the last class. It was, we used to have it in amphitheater, thousands of students, because it was like a mandatory course for almost every student in their first year. And I would stand in front of that amphitheater and I would preach the gospel. You don't get and people would be like, wow, you're so confident. And I didn't understand. I would, be, I would be like, what's confident? If you have something to say, say it. Like, what's the big deal? Like, <laughs> So I had a lot of people who were gravitating toward, toward me, a lot of girls who would be like, or ladies, who would be like, how are you so confident? How, how do you believe in yourself so much? And that was when the burden started to awaken in my heart that it was possible to build a community where you teach the power of the scripture as a real foundation for seeing yourself the way you are uh, and catching a sense of purpose. And that's how God's Great Girls Network started in, the, um, in my second year in the university. Okay. Were there any challenges or... So, um, there were challenges. <laughs> there were challenges. Interestingly, the first of it was, um, even though I had ladies gravitating toward me, by creating that, that Christian community, I also now came, um, I came under the visible eyes of critics, if you see what I mean. Um, so I, I then started to, so I mean, sometimes you feel like you're sent to a people and they're the very same ones that you know, just pawn you and say, don't come near me. I don't know what, you know. So I had, I had ladies who were like, who is this person you guys are following? And what does she even know? Like just some young lady who just came on campus and you're following her and she's creating all this community. You guys are, because we're meeting, I think, two or three times a month and it, it kept growing. We kept having to get new spaces. 
so many people who will just come around to what we used to call Club Empower and they will sitting this Saturday, I'll be teaching, we'll be having assessments. And so we, I, on, the, on the one side, I had people who were getting so excited, so blessed, and the community was rapidly growing. And on the other side, we also had people, even from the church setting, right, who were maybe older and who were stressed out by how their fellowship members were now very devoted to this Debola girl, you know. So I had those criticisms, people who were, you know, maybe I, I even had cases where I was reported to my lecturers, you know, that this is just a part two girl. She's not paying attention to her schoolwork and she's all over doing. Yeah, so there were those kinds of challenges. And I remember trying to close the thing down and stop, but it had had, it had at that time taken a life of its own. So if I was stopping, people were all around me saying, nope, we will continue. So, I mean, you got to do this. Um, yeah, so there was that. And I remember that from my third year, I started to struggle now with feeling that maybe my own was too much. Maybe strong is wrong. And maybe I should mellow and just chill. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm thankful for that season because it has also shaped my tenacity in the pursuit of a vision when I believe God has sent me. And that's what has made me into the person who will do what I believe God wants me to do. Even if you think that maybe, I don't know how to describe it, Shaya, I know send. That's the way I can say <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I just have a small, close-knit community of family members, mentors, and fathers who speak over me and who can offer me counsel uh, that is balanced and say, hey, chill out here, proceed in this direction. But I'm not motivated by social acceptance. I don't need to be liked at all. I, I know send. I don't care. <laughs> I know they do Okay. <laughs> Okay, and then three years after college, that evolved into the Deborah Initiative for Women. Uh, uh, guy, let us give you a word. Uh, uh. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> what is going on here? Uh, and I know you, 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 you had written that you had hesitations and doubts then about um, it evolving into Deborah Initiative for Women. Yes, yes. Okay, yes. could you talk about the hesitations and doubts you had? Um, so before we fully became Deborah Initiative for Women, I had come to Lagos and yeah, I mean, if your heart has been burning for something, you're going to see the opportunities everywhere you go. So I came to Lagos, um, after, you know, my, my, uh, my, uh, university education, waiting for service. And again, I started to have people gravitate around me. Some from OAU days who were part of Club Empower. And who now started to say, hey, Didi, can we meet? Can we pray? So we, we started to just have these informal, free-flowing meetings and, you know, just praying sometimes, sharing the word, um, encouraging ourselves. And I wasn't, I wasn't even getting invited to teach in universities. I was in Unilag several times speaking at their conferences. And I, I used to have my father laugh and be like, what is going on? Are you trying to be a pastor? And I'll be like, nope, nope. I just want to help women. He'll be like, don't be a pastor. Don't be a pastor because being a pastor on, in this terrain has too much politics. And mm. <laughs> don't even try to be a pastor. Just as he would be like, don't look at me being a pastor and think that 
that's the height you want to rise. And I'll be like, nah, not at all. You know, so I can't even believe I'm a pastor today. <laughs> anyway, um, we started to meet, but I was immediately confronted with a brand new dynamic. We now started having married women being invited to the meetings. You would have some who would then come and they will want to talk to you about the challenges in their marriage. I'll be like, I'm single. I don't even know how those things work. So I had situations where I felt ill-equipped and unqualified to attend to. People calling you and saying, my daughter is sick. They are panicking. They want you to pray. They are hoping God is going to speak through you. You know, yeah. And I feel like, no, 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 no. Ah, ah, please, this is not what I sign up for. I don't want to pray with you and we go away. You know, so I started to become really hesitant. Started to say the terrain is different. Um, I do not feel like I am equipped to be a minister at this level. I don't have what to say to the people that will match the reality of their lives because it's a whole different game off campus. People are trying to get jobs. They're praying about their interviews. They're asking you questions, you know, so it felt different. Um, that's number one. Number two was by the time I graduated, I was really keen on crafting a career direction for myself. And I, I felt like I was going to be distracted if I was uh, also trying to build a ministry. And I didn't want to build a ministry. You know, when we were on campus, I didn't think it was a ministry. I thought it was just an outreach, you know. But the idea of ministry was now like scary. And I'm like, I don't want to be boxed into that Christian ministry corner where you're now not able to become a career professional, right? Uh, so yeah, those are my hesitations. But I mean... Look at me today. Deborah Initiative for Women is going to be 10 um, in September, 10 years. So obviously it means that the end of the story is I got past those hesitations. What helped? Um, three things helped. Number one, um, God, God was relentless in his pursuit of me. And I would say that's the biggest story of my life. That is the most humbling part of my life. God has been relentless in the pursuit of me. God has chased me down every time he wanted to put a vision in my hands as though I was the only one who could do it. And I'm not, I'm not the most qualified. I'm in many cases, I'm actually like, I'm on the, I'm, I'm on the Excel sheets that they created the second tab where they are saying, when the main guys, <laughs> if they don't, I'm telling you, I'm telling you Chair, like that other, other Excel sheet that's just, possibility, one supplementarily somewhere. I'm telling you many times, the kind of things God has invited me to partner with him on, I'm not even qualified. But he will then take this thing and boom, blow it up by himself. So he was relentless. Um, every time I you know, would pray, pictures would keep forming, he'll keep speaking. He sent many com uh, confirmations. I stopped reading books because when I open any book, any book, any page I open to, you'll be like, God is just waiting for me in the lines. And I'll seem, I'll, I'll be like, I get it. I get it, but I don't want to do this thing. Um, so that was there very strongly. And of course that happened simply because, well, I had, um, I had history with him. And I do believe that the most important competency that a person requires to thrive in life is actually to be able to hear the Holy Spirit. Um, and I say that without equivocation. So because I could hear him, it also shaped um, how I could sense the direction was leading me. The second was I connected with a certain woman called Dotuari Falo, and her her life at the time was a vivid 
flow out of the vision that I'd received. Shay, I tell you this, anytime you find a person who's today epitomizes the future God is speaking to you about or the vision you are picking in your heart, if you latch onto them, you double the likelihood that you would actually step into that vision and manifest it. So I saw this person, she was just everything that I was receiving in my heart about how I should proceed with my future. And the closer I got, the more it made sense that I should do this, I was born for this, and that from doing ministry, other flows in my life begin to find expression. Uh, so that was definitely the second thing. The third was an agitation in the environment. And what I mean by that is just how people started to reach me and they were saying, uh, DDK, I'm not trying, no, I wasn't DDK then. They were basically saying, Debola, I'm not trying to force you to do anything, but you know, just saying, look at the movement that we built in OEU. I remember how you'd always say, we can be on fire on campus and then get into the city and and be and be contaminated by the system. How how do we keep the fire if you're not willing to lead this movement? Except if you if you think it was just a short term thing. So there were those stirrings, people reaching out, and they they were growing in mass, saying, "We're waiting, we're here. When do we start? What's happening?" You see, so yeah, those things definitely pushed me closer and closer to making a decision. Um, that I believe has changed my own life as well as the community of thousands and thousands of women who have been impacted by the work. Yeah, today now it's in over nine countries or about nine countries. Yes. What what were your mistakes? Um, As far as Debra Initiative for Women is concerned? Yes, please. Okay. Um, What were my mistakes? I would think that maybe my first mistake was sort of thinking that the work was about me. And I don't know how to describe that clearly with the other things I have done, um, maybe in the last five years an early recognition that I'm just a vessel and is not really about me, but about the people, um, you know, yeah, has made us move and gain more traction in the way that the Lord really wants us to work. So when I say about me, it wasn't like I was selfish or anything, but anytime I received, you know, a vision inside the vision, you know, because the vision is evolving, isn't it? And fresh dimensions will continue to be burst as you walk in the path. So I remember in those earlier days of, of Deborah Initiative for Women, every time that I received a staring to do a next thing, which which would become like a next level of the work, I would immediately set it in the context of my own life. So for example, when we started to have members uh, growing in other cities beyond Lagos, and they'll be like, DDK, let's start an extension over here in Portakot or in Enugu. Let's start, you know, we're here and I would immediately set it in the context of, um, I just got married. I can't be traveling a lot. If you see what I mean, who's going to be going to Enugu to preach? Um, I'm freshly pregnant. I don't want my husband to start thinking that, you know, I'm not paying enough attention to family life. Whereas if I just said yes to that staring, it didn't necessarily mean I was going to be doing everything, but I was going to create an architecture that God could step into and raise people for 
and get people blessed by. So there was that. There was also, if I got a staring to invite a person to come be a blessing, if I didn't have a relationship with them, I'd just be like, hmm, I don't want to be, I don't want a no. You know, so it was just a subtle fear for rejection, of rejection, maybe based off on when I was on campus and I had this, you know, this sect of people who thought her own is too much. Who is she? She's almost trying to take fellowship off us. You know, and then I go into this place where I'm just like, let me do my stuff, solo go my way. And I remember that for maybe for, for the first three to five years post getting out of campus, I wouldn't be upfront reaching out to a person and saying, hey, you're doing an amazing work. I'm so, uh, you know, I just want to connect with you. I'm very, that's very unlikely. So it meant that the people that I was in contact with, building relationships with, were partly really those who were just reaching out by themselves and saying, you know, in fact, if you, I would discourage you from being my friend. I, I was really good at that. I would do the Elijah thing. I would tell you, Elijah thing, if you can follow me to this point, if you see me departing, you know, all of that, just to ensure that you back off. So those people who stuck with me were definitely just like, I don't know what it was, um, but yeah, setting things in that context of you, of your fears, of your hesitations can limit the vision. And you can take this and put it in business, put it in nonprofit work, put it in community development, put it in, you know, influencing your mountain, whatever it is that you've been called to do and is burning in your heart. You've got to set the vision in the context of the big picture, not set the vision in the context of where you are now and your own personal hesitations, your own personal limitations. So I, I give you another example. There was a season where it was clear that God wanted to give us a physical property. Words were coming in that direction. I had a staring about it. He was speaking to me. You know, it was just so clear that this was a season that we were going to get a facility. And while I was saying amen in my heart, and I'm like, you know, yeah, I want it. I'm open to it. It will help us become more effective. I, I was still always wondering that how would that happen with the ministry's finance or with my personal finance? How am I going to buy up a space? How am I going to get a facility? Do you see? Because again, I was setting that the, the vision within the context of my own life, my own limitations. And it, it now made the journey longer before coming to the point of really accessing that promise. So that would be a, a big, um, um, it would be a big mistake that, you know, looking back is not something a visionary should do. The second might be just connected to um, a personal weakness that I have. People might look at me and think that I'm so outgoing, but I'm not that outgoing. I feel like a socially, sometimes a very socially incompetent person. I'm serious. <laughs> I, 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 I have, I've had to really improve my ability to to build connections. I love deeply, I love genuinely, but I could I could have done better in the past with building friendships and just, um, you, I don't know how to put it, but yeah, my husband doesn't exactly agree. He thinks that I'm quite vested in my relationships, but that's been maybe the last five years. In the earlier days, I wasn't super vested in my relationships. Um, yeah, so I probably missed out on some powerful relationships, people who came and had real intentions, but I didn't invest enough in those relationships. 
DDK is also a learning and development expert, the founder and CEO of Immerse Coaching Company, as well as the executive director of Ideation Hub Africa. But how did they all happen? What were the challenges? And how has DDK been able to combine all this whilst being a pastor, as well as the president and founder of the Deborah Women Initiative? Find out next week on Origins Africa podcast. Thank you for listening to our show this week. If you liked it, do leave us a review, a comment, and share with your friends. Tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend and to tell another friend. We would also love to read from you. So please do send us a tweet or leave a comment on Instagram at OriginsAF. You can also write to us at OriginsAfricaPodcast at gmail.com. Remember, do subscribe at wherever you get your podcast. Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, amongst others. Our sound producer this week was Tumisha Jani, and the theme song was composed by Just Ritimi. I'm Oshaya, and you've been listening to Origins Africa podcast. Bye for now. My father told me life is not a bit of-